Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. You are listening to DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, 1770 Euclid Street Northwest, Washington, DC. This is an episode of All Things Local, where we highlight DC history, culture, and communities and Washingtonians who have made an impact on our city. Hello, I'm your host, Ray Barker, an archivist in the Special Collections Department at the MLK Library. Today, our guest is Buck Downs. Unfortunately, Ellie Tipton, who also goes by Bevel Townsend, could not make it today, but we will have her back on some other future program. Buck Downs is the author of Marijuana Soft Drink, Ladies Love Outlaws, You Can't Get Enough of What You Really Don't Need, many other titles i understand we can talk more about those and most recently open container a collection of poetry um he is poetry editor at new york city's uh boog city and uh a board member of the district of columbia arts center and does many other things that we're going to dig into today so welcome buck thanks ray and i guess i have to precede our interview in a sense to ask about the name Buck Downs, it sounds like some prefabricated cowboy poet stuff, but let's say that none of that's true and you have no, some abs- other... absolutely uh, uh, quite the opposite. No, my, um, you know, it's a, it's a family name, like a and funny, funny thing to mention, and we were talking about Ellie and, and Bevel and, and sort of like taking names that have family connotations and things like that. But yeah, you know, Buck Downs is, is just my given name and I have an Uncle Buck and... Um, you know, and now people have me as their Uncle Buck. And, you know, I, I personally think it's like a very salutary, positive thing to have a, an Uncle Buck in your life. It was good for me, and I think it's good for them. And I think everybody should give it a try. Right. Everyone should have an Uncle Buck. Um, so we were talking a little bit about, or uh, I was thinking about sort of the history of your history with the poetry scene, I guess, in D.C. And uh, in, her, in your ear... Can you tell us a little bit about In Your Ear and their activities and your relationship to it? Sure. Well, In Your Ear has been a monthly series, been one of the uh, longest running pieces of programming that we do at the District of Columbia Arts Center. Uh, DCAC is, uh, is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, and In Your Ear has been going on for about 29 of those 30 years. It's a monthly series. We do it on Sunday afternoons. We usually have uh, three or four poets We'll have one or two people from out of town and one or two locals and a, a good mix of, of young and old established names and younger poets. And, uh, and it's just, it was something that really, um, one of those things that helped me get acquainted with uh, the community in Washington. Kind of picked it up uh, not too long after I had moved here, just a couple of years after I moved here. And DCAC was just getting started and I was kind of just getting started and we had a we had a, a, a planning committee that sort of became a community and connected itself to a whole, uh, to a kind of a whole history of independent DIY poetry in the district. Right, and I was going to ask 
uh, I, I told you I printed out that interview that you'd done. Do you mind telling me a little bit about when you came to D.C. in 1988, I think? Mm-hmm, sure. And it, I mean, I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a kind of a writer sometimes, but I know it's important to kind of find your quote-unquote peer group or at least a group to like hang out with or send your stuff to and talk it out. How, how was that experience for you when you first got here? It took a while, you know, and I would say to anybody who's moving here, you know, if you've just been here for like six or eight weeks and, and you're just feeling awful about it and maybe like, oh, geez, maybe I made the wrong decision, you know, to just uh, to keep hitting it, keep uh, keep getting out there and meeting people and you will eventually, you know, you'll eventually find that level where you're comfortable. It took me about a year of um, going to various little open mics and stuff. I had kind of, as uh, as you had mentioned about your own history, Ray, I, I had uh, attempted a a path in you know uh, higher education and a little bit more uh, formal writing education, and and it and me didn't suit each other, so I took a little leave of absence from a doctoral program at Louisiana State. And friends encouraged me to move up here, and I did so. Took a little job with a publishing company here in Washington, doing data entry and stuff like that, and started going to shows and open mics and stuff. You know, um, there were crazy clubs in downtown, names like the Insect Club and the 15-Minute Club, and and uh, we would get in there for cheap drinks and open mic night, and eventually sort of started to find a community and find some poets who had been on the scene before I ever got here and uh, finding some common affinities and and really starting to build things forward and doing little publishing projects and then bigger publishing projects and presentation things, reading series like In Your Ear. And are you still friends with any of those people from back then? Absolutely. You know, one of the one of the uh, uh, first friends I made out of that time uh, is a fellow named Rod Smith who manages Bridge Street Books down in Georgetown. We give them a shout out. Best poetry collection on the East Coast, and um, and he remains a friend and a colleague to this day. Uh, he's the guy who published uh, more than one of the the book titles that you mentioned in, in my bio there. Can we <clears throat> talk about? the writing scene either then or now in dc is it a thing a difficult thing to talk about or summarize for someone like me well you know there's just, you know there's an awful lot of it and i feel like it's it's at just the right comfort level for me that there's just really there's there's actually you know i would say there it's not there's slightly more than i can handle which is kind of just right you know and you know it's it's not like being uh, wiped out by a tidal wave but it is just a little bit more. So you do have to kind of pick your spots and you have to find your affinities, you know. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that we found over the time of, as I was part of the committee doing In Your Ear, uh, some of those older poets um, from the, the group that, that was known in the 70s as Mass Transit, they started showing up and we started finding those kind of connections and similar interests, um, artistic and social interests. Uh, writers that are younger than me started coming um, for a while. There, and there still is a, a very vibrant writing community out at George Mason, and those people would make the trek into town to come and check it out. And that's where we're, uh, that's how I met a lot of really fantastic poets like Leslie Bumstead, who you've met, and Heather Fuller and Carol Mirakov, and just a, a tremendous. Uh, group of writers that came out of that writing program yeah and in my mind you know uh and correct me if i'm wrong that the sort of this notion of these peer groups or these writers that's almost generational in a sense and so you've you've hinted on that a little bit about you know when you arrived and there were sort of established writers already and then we'll talk a little bit more about dcac and and 
in your ear and sort of future programming and stuff and that notion mm -hmm. of younger people coming into sort of this established uh, organization. But so mass transit can kind of a sucker for that time period in D.C. You know, it just feels doesn't feel like significantly different place, but it feels definitely like a different place. And uh, can, can you tell me what you know about mass transit and I, the folio bookstore and that? I think I think the it? spirit of that time is very much something that is alive now in Washington. You know, um, Doug Lang, who I'll talk more about later and I'll read one of his poems later. He pointed out for any community in any kind of, um, you know, urban setting, in, in this world, you know, things wax and wane, you know, communities, communities uh, grow up and they, they kind of die back and they, you know, and they just, they, they you know, they, they prosper in some seasons and they don't prosper in others. And when I got here in the late 80s, you know, his, his take on it was that it was sort of in a time in which things were not, were not really prospering all that much. It was kind of a tough time to make it here in Washington. And, uh, and so, you know, like uh, poets like Joe Ross and Sylvana Straw and Rod Smith and, and me, you know, were part of uh, helping that thing to start to wax again, to really become like a, a much stronger, more vibrant community. At that time, you mean, in the late 80s? That's right. So mass transit, you know, that, that is something that, that was happening in the mid to late 70s. There's a great article by a, a poet scholar named Joan Ritalik, and you can still find it archived out there, out there on the interwebs. And that name was what? Joan Ritalik. Okay. And the, the article is called On the DuPont Circle Circle. So it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, sort of this sort of like consciousness of literary history, but at the same time sort of poking a little bit of fun at it. And that was, and that was a lot of the thing of mass transit, that it was not really like a writing school or an organized effort. It was really a bunch of people who had some aesthetic concerns in common and also had some social justice concerns in common. And they would get together on a regular basis and share poetry with each other, and that grew into the series that Doug hosted at the Folio Bookshop, which would, which again, like in your ear, would be a mix of local writers and writers from out of town. You know, like Doug was the first person to bring John Ashbery to Washington, and you know, and and do those sorts of things. Yeah, and they would read at Folio Bookstore on P Street. Mm -hmm, that's right. That's right. And that is now Second Story Books. That's right. That's right. Yeah, okay, that's in Dupont Circle. Mm -hmm. Just to, so everybody knows, uh, we're speaking with uh, Buck Downs today, and I, I guess we should start talking about Doug Lang. And you brought some of his poems. We're going to get through a couple of mm -hmm. poems. It seems like we have enough time to sure, get through sure. some of your work and some of the stuff you you brought. But do you want to tell me a little bit about uh, Doug Lang? If you want to go there, well, Doug Doug has been a great presence on the DC scene for as long as I've been here, and even before. And we've touched on a little bit of that. Originally from Wales, he moved to the U.S. in 1970. Uh, began kind of that itinerant poet's life of just cobbling it together, however he could, being part of a community, uh, you know, sharing smokes and sharing drinks and uh, living the life. Uh, managed the Folio Bookshop for a number of years. Uh, when Folio closed down, he eventually found his way to the Corcoran Gallery and the Corcoran College of Art and became a real mainstay there. Taught there for, I think, a little bit in excess of 30 years. Uh, some other people from that poetry circle at the time, Bernard Welt, Beth Jocelyn, they were also part of the faculty there at the Corcoran and, and again sort of created a community that was very welcoming. Those students, a lot of the students and a lot of the other uh, people who taught there have been real, uh, have been, uh, real pillars of, of this local community and, and, and have really helped to, to, teach, to teach me and teach a whole generation of artists and writers about that kind of 
self-reliance and interdependence. You know, doing it yourself, doing it together. And uh, and and so you know, Doug has been a Doug's been an inspiration for me, and I'm sure an, an inspiration for for probably hundreds of poets and artists in in DC, and 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 as they have moved out in their ways, you know, across the country. Yeah. And did you know about Doug before you got here? No, I did not. I mean, Doug is Doug is is largely a local treasure. You know, uh, Rod Rod Smith's imprint, uh, Edge Books, is has been working on a on a selected poems, like a like finally like a big comprehensive book, and we're all looking forward to that because the because uh, like a lot of us a lot of the poetry has been published in some fairly fugitive publications and they're hard to get hold of these days and uh could you characterize the writing that we're talking about here what i mean uh no one likes titles really too much it mm-hmm. feels reductive in a way I mean, do you want to throw out anything about your your writing or about Doug's or any of the any we'll, of the groups that we've talked about? We'll, would get, you? we'll get to we'll get to uh, uh, summon all of that. You know, Doug Doug is somebody that for who's uh, you know for whom the that kind of encyclopedic knowledge of of culture of jazz and art and sport and and human life never seemed to be a burden. It never seemed to weigh on him, you know. He could, he could, was just. It was a very easy flowing way of being able to talk about whether it's blues music or interpretive dance or contemporary poetry or abstract art. Just being able to to talk about it and listen to others talk about it, freely exchange ideas without without being sort of like burdened by this whole kind of bookshelf of knowledge. He wore it very lightly. Wore it like he has a loose garment, as the as the old book says. And uh, and it was, and that's a real model as much as any else to just sort of understand that you know everything you do everything you've done everything you've learned you know it's it's just that it's just learned you know wear it wear it lightly and hand it off to another to another generation instead of like lording it over or using it as a way to exclude other people yeah sure or- sure i mean you know yeah i mean i think you know people you know it's it's hard enough to make a living you know and people use any kind of advantage they can get but um but you know it's there's just a there's there's just a generosity a, a magnanimity of spirit that i find in Doug's person, and it's reflected in his poetry, and um, and it's one of the things that that attracted me to him as a person, and what attracts me to his poetry still. Right, and that that spirit, that generosity of spirit, is reflected in the the, the groups that we've been talking about. I would assume. Absolutely. Okay. Can we transition into reading some stuff, sure. and we'll get back into talking. Whatever you want to yeah, read. Yeah, let's it. do that. I'm, I wanna, I'll read. Um, one, maybe two, maybe just one. So Buck is holding a book of poetry now. Who does that anymore? But so, what is that? This is this is a, a little book called Magic Fire Chevrolet that Doug uh, that Doug wrote um, in 1978 and was published in a in a very small edition by a little local press called Titanic Books. It's a little chat book. That's right. That's right. And you know, and, and all of these people, you know, this is um, you know actually Diane Ward and Terry Winch and Bernard Welt were the people who did Titanic books and there are those there are all those mass transit people cool and great so yeah thanks and so this is a poem of Doug's called the Americans it's a little bit of a long poem and it comes in nine sections the Americans one the Americans are waiting for me in the lobby they are lovely and all have perfect bodies they are my Americans two I walk through the rain with the Americans. We get wet. It is May Day, 1976. We go to Machiavelli's. We eat cannelloni, lasagna, veal scallopini, and so on. Style is what brings these Americans to an intelligent appreciation of the world. 
We play Fats Waller and Al Jolson on the jukebox. Al Jolson reminds me of Jim Long. Hi, Jim. So long. When we leave, we leave and the rain has stopped. Some of the Americans are kind of drunk. Some of the Americans are called Barbara, Melissa, Michelle, Mike, Carrie, Jody, Diane, Timothea, Jim, Lauren Ethel, Anne, Clifton, Suzanne, Bruce, Rommel, Robin. Three. I dream often of the Americans. They are perfect dream figures. They undress carefully and lie down in the sun, creating a sense of calm. This is why my life is in such chaos. When I awake, I go to Schwartz's and order two poached eggs on wheat toast and coffee. I remember the occupations of the Americans. They are poets, painters, actors, cops, dancers, musicians, waitresses, bartenders, cab drivers, carpenters, photographers, elevator operators. They're all crazy like I am. Four, it is Thanksgiving. I go to the Dubliner. The band is playing Turkey in the Straw. When the Americans arrive, there is all this obsessive talk about everything. There is some despondence, but more than this, there is passion. The Americans have created this awful tension in me, which can't be resolved. It is the tension of recognition. This gives me pleasure. Five, I want this to be exact. It isn't. Six, a long stream of smoke slowly forms a visible sigh. All the Americans sigh. It's been a long, long, long time. I sigh. I'm high. Seven. I'm thinking of P. Inman, an American, when the telephone rings, and it is P. Inman on the telephone, an American. The Americans have this secret smile on their face. Ted, Joan, Michael, Simon, Maureen, Steve, Ray, Betsy, Terrence, and some whose name I don't know. Eight. The Americans are waiting for their pizza to arrive without anchovies. There are no windows in the room. Could be any time of day or night. When I awake, I'll remember how it was to be sitting in a room with the Americans, eating the TV dinner and sipping the Coca-Cola and feeling fine and going back to sleep and waking again and going downstairs for some cookies and a glass of milk and a peanut butter sandwich and another glass of milk and feeding the cats and putting on my fedora to go have lunch with the Americans and taking the metro to Union Station with the Americans. And I remember remembering, in season of distress and clarity, the Americans. Nine. A long time ago, my friend, he said, you should bite her on the butt, and I said I did, I did. This was how I came to discover that they are truly delicious, these Americans. I see them all the time, on Connecticut Avenue, on P Street, around DuPont Circle, all over the place. Everywhere I go, the Americans flow like wine. Believe me, I know what it is. Nice. So the outsider there, because he's from Wales, is that, it's all about that? Right. You know, but, but then at the same time, that sort of collegiality that, you know, I mean, even, even as he sort of like steps back to look, you know, he is part of that crowd. And they're, you know, and, and they, they, they embrace him and he embraces them. And, you know, and without, and again, without making like a, a real kind of heavy point of it, you know, through a kind of lightness and, a, and just a piling on of those details, sort of, yeah, does that thing of, of belonging even as, a, even as a nominal outsider. Uh-huh, right. Kind of a casual, mm-hmm. uh, casual walk through his mm-hmm. uh, perspectives there. <clears throat> yeah. um, but thank you. So um, <clears throat> moving on, uh, I was going to ask you a little bit about the events that uh, in your ear 
does mm-hmm. or in the past or currently. And we were talking about sort of the mix of generations. Can we talk a little bit about that? Who makes up the group and and that, what your activities are like? Yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, like a monthly series like that is is not you know it. You know, every time that I haven't been part of the curatorial team, I look back and it doesn't seem like there was that much work to do. But then when I actually, you know, I've had I've had two different runs of being one of the one of the people on the planning committee. And it turns out that like, yeah, it is actually like a lot of it's a little it's just a little bit more work than one person can do, which is uh, scheduling, arranging. Yeah. You know, corresponding with people and scheduling things and, and you know, making sure that the gallery, making sure that, that the, the, the office manager knows that the gallery is booked for that period and making sure that the that the poets know when to show up and doing the promotional stuff. You right. Know, and this is D.C. Art Center. Sorry to interrupt you. It's D.C. Mm-hmm. Art Center down the street here, a couple of blocks mm-hmm. From where we're uh, broadcasting today. Right there and, on 18th Street between <laughs> Belmont and Columbia. And it started uh, in 89. Well, so DC Art Center, I can make a plug. We're doing a 30th mm-hmm. uh, anniversary exhibition collaboration between Special Collections Library, um, Ames Armstrong, and uh, mm-hmm. colleagues uh, at the library with me uh, sometime in late June and uh, July. So we're pulling from our archives and kind of trying to tell the DC Art Center story mm-hmm. through their archival materials and some through some present day uh, performance artists and other artists, and it's still coming together, of course. But um, one part of their history, of course, is giving space. A uh, big part of their history is just to give space to people that do their mm-hmm. own thing, and so that's where uh, in your ear, and I keep calling it inner ear, but I guess maybe there's a pun there. But in your ear, in your face. Um, Poem, poetry group has met there almost since the beginning of DC Art Center in 1989. That's right. The original executive director, Andrew Mellon, wanted some literary programming to go with the theater and, and gallery offerings that they were doing. So he brought together a, a group of four of us, uh, Silvana, Straw, Joe Ross, Rod Smith, and I. And so we just started doing this programming. And um, and after a while, you know, Silvana had Silvana had to peel off because she had some other commitments and a full-time job and stuff like that and um and then Rod got busy and he had to peel off and Joe got busy we pulled in some other people Heather Fuller um was one of the curators and one of the things that that has made In Your Ear continue to be really interesting and has helped it to continue to evolve is that no one person has actually been in charge of it for any extended period of time I'm a big believer in 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 a thing that I've that I've been taught called the spirit of rotation, you know, and and over over the 20, 28, 29 years that the that the series has been in motion, there there have been I think a total of something like fifteen or sixteen different people who have been involved, and there's always been this process of one curator, one presenter, kind of cycling off the committee, and another one coming on. And, um, and it's as, been, a, as an organic process, not like, right. well, your three-year term is up now. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's just really been from, from each person according to how much energy they could put in. You know, for me, like I say, I, I did it for about five or six years, and I found at a point that I had kind of, I had effectively asked every poet in my address book to come to Washington to read, and I didn't have anyone else left to ask. So I had to hand it off, you know, because that's when it starts to get stale if I start repeating myself. So Tom Orange came in and took my place, and he and he and Heather did that for a while, and Heather cycled out, and Kathy Eisenhower came in. And there's just been this continuous, nice, organic, you know, sort of handing off of the baton from one poet to the next poet. And it has allowed the series to evolve. It has allowed it to be more inclusive, you know, because it's like I only know the people I know, right? I can't ask people I don't know. 
And um, so to bring in people who bring in another poet who who has a whole different address book to draw from and a whole different you know uh, field of interest to to draw upon has made the has made the series continue to be a really interesting, really vital thing, and has really kind of helped it to get a a little prominence, sort of as 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 much as these things go in kind of the poetry world and poetry circles that people who know the the Washington poetry scene know about in your ear and even people outside of Washington who follow those kind of circles know that it's a it's a great date and a good space and a, and usually a, a a good receptive audience for for just as much you know for just as much poetry as you want to do you know it's a, it's a place that welcomes risk taking and 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 really invites you to bring your most challenging work yeah, and Tom Orange I met through Rhizome, and he connected me to you guys, and it's kind of nice the way mm-hmm. those things work out, and I guess you have some connections to Rhizome, yeah. too. You've read there? I've, I've read there. I've done, I've done a little poetry workshop there that I teach about um, poetry workflow. Leslie Bumstead is, is one of the, the sort of founding members of Rhizome, one of the people who worked a lot to, to get that space booted up and running. And she's one of those George Mason University alums that I was talking so highly about a few minutes ago. And just a, a fantastic poet, a fantastic intelligence, and and really uh, very much that, you know, I keep talking about this DC blend of, uh, of a particular artistic sensibility and a particular kind of interest in social issues and social justice, and she really embodies that, you know, in, in her work and, and in her life as well. So um, switching gears a little bit, I feel like I read articles, uh, this sounds a little random, um, mm-hmm. I feel like I read articles or certain certain stories cycle through the news cycle occasionally, and it's something like, people should care more about poetry. Mm-hmm. We should find time, we should really find time to read poetry more. And I guess my theory on that is if if you if you care enough or you want to read it or make time or explore that sort of art, you will find a way. So I'm kind of getting it back at what you're saying about Mm -hmm. your activities and your events. And I imagine that the circle of poets is probably a, a little small, but I guess the best you can do is sort of spread the word that you exist so people can find you. I know we're kind of circling back a little bit to what... You were you were saying about first finding a group to to work with and how important that is. Yeah, you know, um, you know, it's it's a thorny issue, and and I'm and I think like most people, I'm I'm of more than one mind about it. Um, what draws me to poetry and what draws me to um, to forms like it are these forms that I would that I would say have low barriers to entry. You know, it is it is actually, you know, the amount of kind of physical equipment and wherewithal and training that you need is is fairly modest, you know, compared to making a movie, putting on a play, um, sculpting in bronze or marble. Uh, So I've always gravitated to forms like poetry and song and dance and drawing that are these kind of like low impact uh, low barrier to entry art forms, and and that's what attracts me to them. And I think other people are attracted to them as well. Um, you know, I mean, I I just I I, I always am, find myself almost thinking like the opposite. Like I should like the movies more, and and I just I just kind of don't. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I try, you know. For, you know, and thanks DC Public Library because I'll go there and I'll you know, I'll check out DVDs and I'll try and like watch movies and <laughs> and I always just end up like getting up and walking away because it just seems like so involved. There's so much expense being put into this uh, product that just finally is not really speaking to me in any kind of direct sense, you know. And, and I have to kind of accommodate it and just uh, it just kind of it just kind of rubs me the wrong way, I guess. And that's that's fine, but mm-hmm. uh, we can transition into something that doesn't rub you the wrong way as much. <laughs> um, I see other books here now. So, mm-hmm. where do you want to go next? Do you want to read one of your own, or do you want to read this here, the one in the middle? Well, just let's let's just keep on going here. I'm not too much. Uh, we're so we're just fine on time. Oh yeah, so. we've got plenty of time. So you know the where the I'll I'll just keep talking a little bit more about DCAC, you yeah. know, because we are doing our our thirtieth anniversary. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Yeah, I was. And, gonna, I actually wanted to know more specifically about you guys meet on Sunday. What does the schedule right. look like? It's the it's the third Sunday of every month. We're there at three o'clock in the afternoon. Usually get started a couple of minutes after that. So uh, you know, there's about fifty seats in the theater. So there's always room for for a couple more people. It's a little black box theater in the back mm-hmm. of the gallery space. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, our next one is going to be uh, coming up this this Sunday, the seventeenth. And then, uh, and then March 17th, and then we'll do April and May, and then we'll take a couple of months off for the summer. So if I show up at 3 o'clock, what's, what will happen? What do I see? Or what you're do gonna, I hear? You're going to see you're gonna uh, see a bunch of people sort of getting settled into their seats, and at about 10 o'clock, one of our hosts, uh, either Ellie or, or someone else on the curatorial team, is going to get up and welcome you and uh, say a little bit about the poets that we're going to hear. And then you'll hear a couple of poets read for 15 to 20 minutes. We'll take a break. You can go back upstairs and grab a beer or a soda. And then we'll come back down and hear a couple more. Um, Probably get done about quarter to five or so. And then um, I meant to ask, so when someone serves as a curator, Mm -hmm. does that mean that they are in charge of who reads and they have their sort of, like you were saying, your little black book or whatever of Mm -hmm. your your group of poets is that kind of how that plays out that is that's exactly how oh, okay. it works that's exactly how it works the committee the committee that is that is sort of managing in your ear at any given time they're the ones that are making the selection and you know they get they get queries people write in and you know they sometimes they just write the office manager at DCAC and like I'd like to read it in your ear and you know and that gets forwarded on to the to the people who are doing the planning and you know and yeah, so there's just like a mix of, of soliciting people and getting requests and uh, and really, yeah, custom curating that schedule. Oh, thank you. I interrupted you, but what? Mm-hmm. let's move on. What, who do you want to read? I was going to read another one of these mass transit poets, uh, a good friend of mine named Phyllis Rosenzweig. You know, Phyllis, uh, uh, after her time sort of being part of that poetry group and continuing to actually be part of that poetry group, she had a long career at the Hirshhorn and, and later retired. So again, like somebody who who was not only a poet, but actually had a, a bigger engagement with, with, uh, with culture in D.C. and was an influence on a, on a whole bunch of people, including me. And another little chapbook of hers, uh, a chap, another little chapbook, one of hers from the 1970s, and, and a, a much shorter poem this time. And the title of her chapbook is 17 just Poems? 17 Poems, just kind of a, a, a classic, almost cryptic, sort of a modern title, right? Just sort of calling it as it is. It's very liter- literate, That's literal. Right. Yeah. That's it. So this is called Rembrandt's Hat. A pause in a rare and sentimental mood, time for a positive attitude about negatives. Do I always appear to you in completely realistic circumstances, dressing and undressing you want to appear at parties be called intimate names 
in public places, and I wonder, would life be sad if Rembrandt hadn't painted sadness? You know, so it's a, a little bit different kind of poetry from what we get with Doug. You know, it's much more, it's a little bit uh, much tighter. Uh, not so much of that, that freewheeling smashing of catalog item upon catalog item. But still that sort of, that place where, where feeling meets those cultural landmarks and sort of, um, and causes that little explosion in the mind. And it's the thing I love about her poetry. It's the thing. I, it's the thing that I love about a lot of the poetry that uh, that I see in DC. You know, because it has. Because as we were talking about before, it has those multiple engagements with not only not only with work, uh, but with issues, with a personal life, with a cultural life, and really trying to write a poetry that that's, that kind of brings all those things together, like like sort of atoms in the in the hadron collider. You know, like make them crash into one another and see the sparks that come off of it. And we were talking about that before we started, uh, when we, before we went on the mic here. But what can we talk about that? I find that interesting. Um, you know, I think there's a tendency to want to say, well, what are DC poets like? And it's sort of like saying, well, what is DC music like? What's mm-hmm. the music scene like? You know, if, if anyone is interested in art and culture, there's always that, that thing about the region and what does is, what is that particular region sound like or... or, or uh, you know what? What is the what is the literature like from that region? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's something that just we, we do in conversation. And so, uh, for DC, um, we were talking about uh, how people are able to the concentration of people here uh, means that there are there is more opportunity for people to sort of engage with uh, other things uh, at, a, at a faster rate or a more a more frequent rate. Because of the population, et cetera. But can we talk about that point in relationship to the the writing scene and the poetry scene? Is there something that's more unique about DC that you wouldn't see in Boston or New York City? Or can we do those kinds of comparisons? You know, I I think that I think that that it has its own specific flavor here in Washington, which has a lot to do. Uh, and Pardon me if I start to go off into the weeds of like you know taxation without representation and oh you're going to get you know. political now. Okay. <laughs> but there there is something about sort of standing in the shadow of institutional power that makes for a a good place to conduct this kind of shadow business because you feel like you're being heard or that's the what is that There's, what are the implications of there that? There seems there seems to be a big political and cultural and economic discourse kind of happening up over my head, you know, and it's not just institutions like the U.S. Congress, it's institutions like the Kennedy Center and the National Gallery of Art and the National Theater. And a, a very large, very well-heeled, very established cultural, intellectual, political, economic discourse. With a lot of power. With a lot say. of power to it, big power discourse. And it, and it all seems to be kind of happening over my head. And here I am down here, sort of in that shadow and finding it to actually be a very congenial place to be, and that's and and I, and I think that that is that's a reality that that tempers what has always been a kind of homegrown do-it-yourself aesthetic. You know, I hear it in straight-edge music. I hear it in go-go. I see it in color school painting. I see it in, the, in a whole range of the kind of homegrown artistic subcultures that we find here in Washington that there's like all this there's all this big deal stuff going on but it's not actually all that super relevant to what I'm doing myself I'm in fact 
down here at Machiavelli's eating the cannoli and, and interacting with the Americans and doing and just doing my thing that's happening at this at this much more modest level, but has a lot more to do with intimate connection to the people immediately around me and really creating an, an art that has a kind of self-reliance and a communication of that spark of joy, even if it never really finds its finds a place up there in that in that discourse of institutional power yeah, in that upper sphere that's right but i've never heard anyone say it like that before but i really like that and there's like maybe a subconscious or even a conscious awareness or a combination of those of uh those the bigger institutional things and it, it yeah and it and you're sort of aware of that at all times and mm-hmm. it and sort of it influences your you know your more um your humble or your more smaller sort of engagements yeah. of what you're talking about. You know, for uh, at one point I was doing a lot of research into uh, Washington Color School painting for a project that I was working on, and there was and there was a lot of discussion at the time in Washington in art circles about, you know, is it possible to make a living as an artist in Washington? And and it was a it was a very fraught conversation that was happening in the in the fifties and sixties and seventies and and is still going on today and is and is an absolutely relevant question for anybody who wants to work in the arts right can I actually like make my bones doing this and I kind of came to the conclusion on my own that if that if um, if the goal is to make these art objects and put them in a gallery and sell them to customers and pay your rent that way. There are probably other better cities to be in, New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles. I don't, I don't even know. But if you are somebody who is willing to get a job and then find time in your schedule to make whatever art it is you can make, whatever poetry it is you can write, sort of as this side piece, you know, aside from that main job that pays your rent, this is a great city to be creative in. Mm-hmm. Because there's all there's always opportunity to work. There's always work to be found. There's always work to be had. Someone's always hiring. And it's all those people too that we were saying mm-hmm. earlier that you just bump into in these groups that we're talking about these mm-hmm. writing groups. That's right. There's a more a greater chance of you bumping into something that's happening that you can connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I meant to say earlier when you were talking about in the shadow of the of this of this mm-hmm. place, those large institutions, it seems to be a an awareness of a con, you know, this contrast. Mm-hmm. This is always that contrast between the bigger uh, institutions present here and nowhere else in the in the country mm-hmm. that you're aware of. That it's just an interesting thing. I've never heard it said that way before. Yeah. Um, but we're speaking to Buck Downs, and I thought Buck, um, we would hear uh, something from your new collection, maybe mm-hmm. Open Container. And can we talk about the self-publishing just a little bit? And because I thought that was mm-hmm. interesting too. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always been a fan of it. You know, uh, some of my education was in the book arts. Uh, shout out to our friends at Pyramid Atlantic up in Hyattsville. Now I volunteered there for a number of years. When I first came to Washington, that's where I was exposed to letterpress printing and, and hand book binding and the book arts, and, and it's a, a really important part of my kind of intellectual toolkit. And, um, you, know, it's a, you know, if you've ever had that experience of just sort of like handing a sheaf of paper to somebody and being like, I wrote this, read it, and they kind of, maybe they react positively, but maybe they don't. 
you know, when you can take a moment to just kind of like bind it up nicely and really have some thought about the form that the book is going to be in and, and put a nice cover on it and stuff like that, it's much more like a present and much less like an obligation to sort of ask your friends to read your poems. You know, when you can kind of make this nice thing with it. Some of what I teach, some of my, some of the people that I coach as a writing coach, is some of these tools about how we do presentation in a way to, uh, to make that package uh, more attractive and, and make it more likely to be read by people. So this is, yeah, this is the new book. Ray's holding a copy of it. I've got a copy. It's called Open Container. If you want to, if you want to get a copy, if you want to find out more about it, the easiest thing to do would be to hit me up on social media. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram or uh, LinkedIn. Uh, and buck, buck Downs across the board there? Yeah, with yeah, just, just search for Buck Downs. You're not going to find anybody else. It's, it's really neat. That <laughs> the one way. and only. Okay. That's right. So, great. I appreciate you bringing this stuff in, and I appreciate mm-hmm. you selecting, taking the time to select something. Mm-hmm. So, sure, you know, so I'll just read, like, maybe, uh, I like this. this I'll, I'll read three little poems, and then we'll be just about to the end of our time. This is called Next to the Last Call. I kept on confusing Don't Tread on Me with Live Free or Die indoor pigeon of the ecosystem, insanely watch unlimited action, unhappy drinkers who wrote the book about it, interior horsemen high on the negative elevation, my neighborhood cemetery is raking it in. Thrive all night. Funny dealing in the ace, a forward drift from stable to stable. I tapped out a mind map of my career in a history of old phone numbers, failed educator, entertainer, failed entertainer. Guess how much I want to know. As much as I get lit making repairs and doing maintenance on the light, I should be ashes. I must be almost invisible by now. And this is called Pack a Lunch. And I'll say thanks again to Ray. Thanks for all, to all of y'all for sure. listening. Uh, pack a Lunch. American daily rise and fall coming on strong. Sudden feeling like adulterant in the smoke. Unable to unmix the compound as I am, smoking it in. The place where I have nothing but work. Sleep in different spots. Life in different times. Knocked out on the material without even knowing it rip and repair in the same motion so that's so that's open container and uh yeah i'll be i'll actually be reading at the dc art center from that book and some new things on march 17th in the in your ear series so uh come and check us out there and uh be doing a couple of other readings uh, in the region to hopefully sell a few copies of the book in march and april yeah great thanks uh buck i appreciate that i wanted to ask one final question about uh in your ear mm-hmm. what kind of relationship do these um, poetry collectives or these poetry groups have with other city uh other cities who have similar groups of writers is there any sort of communication with any other cities that have similar groups like this you know it waxes and wanes as as i had said before about the scene itself you know and um for a long time there was a real fertile communication um between the the people who were doing in your ear and the people who were who were doing a couple of series in baltimore um that then that kind of waned a little bit and it's coming back um there's a great series happening up at brickback Brickbat Books in Philadelphia now that um, that some of our some of our crew have gone to and some of that crew has been down here, 
And so, you know, yeah, it has a lot to do with those personal connections and those personal networks, but um, always happy to, to go elsewhere and share the, share the D.C. flavor with our friends in other cities. Oh, good. I'm always just curious how self-contained these things mm-hmm. are and what yeah. the influencer relationship is outside mm-hmm. of this, uh, this stage here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of updates for you, but thank, that, thank you. That was Buck Downs reading from his poetry collection, Open Container, and find him online where you find your uh, friends. Um, so we have a couple of special collections events to announce. Uh, coming up soon is All the Rage, Washington, and Impeachment. That's Saturday, March 9th at 1 p.m. in the Peabody Room at Georgetown Library. We have some house history workshops where you learn about uh, the history of your house, of course, through uh, different primary source records and databases that we have in special collections. Uh, Coming up Thursday, March 14th at 12 p.m. Tuesday, March 26th at 6 p.m. in Washingtonian interim space at the Van Ness UDC uh, Metro down the street from there. A uh, program I'm involved in and I'm very excited about, speaking to uh, printmaker and artist Lou Stovall. Uh, we're talking to him. We're just talking to him about the three different paintings that the Cleveland Park Library has in their lobby. And uh, so we're just going to talk through each of those with Lou and his son, Will. And hopefully his wife, Di, will be in the front row sort of filling in the gaps of things that none of us can recall. So really excited about that. That's Saturday, March 16th at 1 p.m., and we'll talk with Lou for about an hour. Um, finally, Saving Family Treasures, personal archiving workshop. Uh, that's Thursday, March 21st at 6 p.m., again at the UDC space. Uh, thank you again, Buck, for being here today. I really appreciate it. Good, Thanks, to, good to hear this stuff uh, in this format. Um, this has been an episode of All Things Local on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C., Please visit dclibrary.org to learn more about the library's services and programs. Talk to us online at DCPL on Twitter and at DC Public Library on Instagram. Listen and download the show wherever you listen to your podcast by searching Full Service Radio. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. Thanks.